welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. My guest today is Kathy Escobar. Kathy co-pastors The Refuge, a Christian community and mission center in North Denver. She's also founder of the nonprofit Community Heals. Kathy is passionate about healing community, people on the margins of life and faith, equality, justice, relationships, and practicing a healthier way of moving in the world. She's also the author of several books, including her most recent, Practicing, Changing Yourself to Change the World. I had the privilege of hearing Kathy speak last fall, and I knew I wanted to have her as a guest on the podcast. What I didn't know is that our stories would share a common theme, as we've both been walking through a grief journey the last several months. Today, Kathy and I talk about the practice of mourning and lament in the midst of a global pandemic. Kathy also offers her insight about being able to sit in our pain while knowing God is with us in the midst of it. Kathy, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Well, like like I said when we were chatting, I really appreciate you being here. I know it's a weird world we're living in and a hard, hard spot, and you have a lot of things and responsibilities going on in your life. So I appreciate you taking the time out to chat today. Well, I'm happy to be here. You know, it's on all of our minds and our hearts, and we're all intersecting with this uh, current season in different ways. So I'm happy to take a little break and get to hang out with you today. My listeners know your professional resume from how when I introduced you, but can you go ahead and just introduce yourself like your day-to-day, your family life, where you live and all of that? Sure. Well, my life is really uh, diverse and eclectic on a good day. It's extra (laughs) focused right now on how to nurture my community. The faith community that I co-pastor is called The Refuge. Uh, We are 14 years old. We're in North Denver. And we're a Christian community and mission center, and we've just got a lot of hard and beautiful um, situations that everyone has always had since the beginning of our life together. And so this is just magnifying so much for our folks. So a big part of my life right now is just co-leading our community through unprecedented times. Personally, you know, I've been married to Jose for almost 30 years. Um, We really have have been through thick and thin and are in the middle of walking out grief from the loss of our son. We have five children and we lost our youngest son it, it, this last fall. And I have four young adult children who are still on this earth who are navigating this too. So I'm a mom walking four kids through a horrible, hard life experience, and then also a global pandemic. Two are actually with us right now, staying here during uh, COVID-19, and so we're grateful to have them home. Everyone lives in different states. Jose and I are empty nesters, or were empty nesters. (laughs) Like all of us, we were, but now we have a full family at home. (laughs) We do, and so I write and speak, and uh, we have a nonprofit called Community Heals. There's so many different aspects, but the reality right now is pretty much grief and global pandemic um, are the biggest part of our life right now, and then practice through a pandemic. So that's a big piece of the day-to-day. Yes. And when I originally sought you out to come on, the global global pandemic wasn't even going on. So this conversation is going to shift a little bit because of that. But I do feel like it's God's timing to be able to talk to you. There's so many parts of your story. I originally 
became aware of you when I heard you speak at the Evolving Faith Conference when me and my daughter came this last fall to Denver and heard you speak there. So I knew I wanted to have you on the podcast eventually because I read your book, Faith Shift. So that is what I thought we would talk mostly about. But then started reading your blog and one that you had sent or that you had written months and months ago shortly after your son Jared passed was about grief has no rules and I read that and I shared it with a friend of mine whose daughter also committed suicide and that really spoke to her so you were kind of on my radar and then my dad passed and your blog the practice of grieving and living at the same time just really spoke to me and I shared it with my mom and brother and that's when I I think emailed you if you would consider coming on to talk about grief. And that was a gosh a month or two ago and had to reschedule and how here we are with grief and a pandemic and Easter approaching. So all of those things. So that has really shifted kind of our conversation. We're not gonna so much talk about like your childhood story because you've got a lot there. We're gonna focus a lot on talking about the grief and the pandemic and Easter. But before we do that, I do wanna talk about, because the refuge is such a huge part of your life and mission, we'll go back a little bit before that, just a little bit over your shifting of faith and how you came to open the refuge, because you just celebrated 14 years of it. If you don't mind just sharing that, just a little bit of your backstory about how your faith shifted and then how you came to open, go to seminary and open the refuge. Well, sure. So just briefly, I mean, I was not raised in a Christian family. That wasn't where our zone was. <laughs> and when I came to faith, I kind of went all in and um, was in a pretty rigid uh, conservative evangelical stream for a chunk of years and then started to integrate some of my true story. And this is a long time ago. My daughter yeah. is 26, so 26 years ago. And when I started to do that, bumped up against really the um, the structures and systems that didn't allow for full integration of the whole human experience. So there, it kind of forced a split where stuff on the outside and stuff on the inside were not integrated. And so I knew how to say all the right things and know all the right things, but inside I was dealing with a lot of personal pain things in my relationship with God and myself and other people. And so as I started to become more honest in some really healthy and challenging groups that were recovery, healing, women's groups that were telling the truth, I just became more integrated. And when I did that, I bumped up against the system um, that really said, don't tell the truth. We don't want to hear your real story. And we don't want to talk about feelings. Uh, We want to talk about saving souls. And we don't want to talk about anger and fear and those things. Pray it out, move it out, keep it moving. You know, there's joy in Jesus. Kinds of structures uh, that really were limiting to me. So the way that that ties into the refuge is that I was always kind of facilitating that really for about 23 years. Okay, I've been doing any kind of holding space for folks to be more honest. And so 16 years ago, I went on a big church staff. I have a master's in organizational development management, kind of healthy system stuff. And then I went to Denver Seminary first to be a therapist. Um, and then I'm a terrible therapist. I'm way more <laughs> of a community builder and ended up uh, getting a certificate in spiritual direction, basically. So when I was on a big church staff, it was a wonderful experience. I was working in care um, for people, recovery, prayer, small groups, you know, anything related to healing community, really. 
and just had a big shift in terms of politics and hard stuff related to power in a mega church and um, really bombed out of there. Faith, huge faith deconstruction and really began to uh, question everything but what was still in there and is still in here more than ever. And really in the global pandemic and grief, it's even been magnified. And that is the need for egalitarian, eclectic, inclusive, mm-hmm. honest, and vulnerable, raw and real healing community. And yes. so that's how The Refuge was born 14 years ago, out of that pain. And we've stumbled and bubbled, uh, bumbled. We've evolved in many ways over the years and really evolved into being a Christian community and mission center. And we use that language because if people think that they're coming to church, quote unquote, it's just so different. It really is a hub for healing and people intersect in all different ways and a hub for action. So there's a lot of social justice. There's a lot of advocating for anyone on the underside of power. There's uh, a lot of equal table in our core ethos that everyone plays, everyone's equal. We all give, we all receive. And so it's really, it's a dream come true, but like all things, you know, dreams are a lot prettier when they're just dreams. You know, it's pretty messy. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. It's beautiful. So that's what we do in our day to day. And it's really one of the biggest joys of my life. Um, But there's a lot of pain, you know, real life in human beings is a lot of pain. And so I sometimes tell the refuge, you know, we're no different than any other group in so many ways. And you have a huge focus, not only at the refuge, but in your own life. You just a focus and passion for equality and social justice. And is that something you've always had or did that just probably come along with your face shift? I think the more the more I started telling my real story and then meeting real people who were more honest in terms of what was really going on inside and intersecting with people on the underside of power, whatever yeah. that structure looked like, that it just got stronger and stronger. You know, every yeah. every day really it gets stronger. Taking even this global pandemic is a good example because, you know, there is a a hashtag I've been using, it's pandemic privilege. You know, Mm -hmm. there is real, it's really true that there's a whole huge amount of humans in the planet right now who are on the underside of this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, let's, we can, let's dive back into that a little bit because that's been something I've been thinking and telling my daughters about and talking about too, of the privilege that is even in this pandemic. And when you said just a minute ago, like once you started to tell more of your real story, what do you mean about that? Just the honesty of the hurts and the struggles and that, that you felt like you had to whitewash maybe before? Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, I grew up in a really dysfunctional family. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. I had an abortion in high school and hid it and stuffed it down. You know, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. There are all these things that basically I was supposed to kind of navigate inside my soul with God, me and God. And um, the truth was, is that it just never, I wasn't free until I started saying the truth out loud in a group of safe people. And that happened over a lot of time. It didn't all come out at once. You know, it was a long process of just learning how to become more honest. And so I think things related to shame and, you know, I'm so grateful for, for Brene Brown and all that she's done and kind of um, illuminating the realities of shame in our life. And I'm so sad, frankly, about the church, the church. When I say the church, you know, I kind of mean it in the biggest sense. Yes. That it's it's so 
filled with people who are walking around with so much shame Mm -hmm. and nowhere to really process it. And I think that that's why a lot of her message has resonated so much because it's giving language to the things that people have been wrestling with. But the reality is that often when we're honest, so that was me, if I was honest about some of the things that I was struggling with in those early years, I mean, I was just met with, have you prayed about it? Here's a scripture. I'll pray for you. You know, simple answers that keep us divided. Oh, absolutely. And if I, if I look at the 50s plus odd podcasts I've done, and I'm sure you too, with the people you've talked to, shame is just that underlying everybody has experienced, especially those in the church, that it just compounds and makes their story so much harder. And so it's just such a common, and I've seen it with my own daughter. I mean, I wasn't raised in the church, so I don't feel like I had as heavy as that burden of shame, but just her being raised in the church and the hardships that she's felt like she has to minimize or use other coping things because she has to be this perfect church girl. And it's really opened my eyes. And that has a lot to do with my own deconstructing of faith too. But yeah, it's a, it's a hard part of the story being raised in the church. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing, just how deep it is and how much healing can happen when we break out of that and have safe spaces yeah. to um, be with other humans. I mean, it's just human. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and we were, we kind of missed out on the human thing and had to like rise above our humanity instead of entering into our humanity. And I know one of the parts of your story, and we're skipping around and fast forwarding here, but probably one of the hardest parts of your story happened late 2019 with your son. And would you just share what you're comfortable sharing about that? Because that really leads us into this topic of talking about grief and mourning and lament. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm from the very beginning, one of the things that's happened after 26 years of being honest, more honest is just that we chose and will continue to choose to just be honest about our son. And so we have five children and my babies, um, are uh, 20. The twins are 20. And so Jared is my number five, number four and five came together. And uh, Jared died by suicide on October 28th of 2019 in his college dorm room about four hours from here. And it's just such a hard and painful story for our family because he truly just in this season, the last two and a half years, just no indicators at all. Not one. My daughter had been with him just a week before visiting from New York City. She's studying to be almost a dentist. She's almost done. They canceled her graduation for global pandemic, but she is going to be a doctor next month. And so she was there. I mean, we communicated with him regularly all of the everythings around just pointed to not knowing, you know, what happened that morning. And what we do know is we lost him. That's what we know. Mm -hmm. We lost him. And we do know that he was dearly loved. And we do know that he was a bright and shining light. Jared was a person who really is the future He's the kind of leader and dreamer and advocate and community builder that the world really needs. And so the loss of the loss of any life is devastating, but there is something really extra hard about losing that kind of passion in the world. And so our family, I mean, it's a great example of like, you never know what Mm -hmm. could happen. I mean, it is not, it was not on our radar. And I work in mental health. My husband does too. Um, 
in his work. So it's not like it was, we weren't separated. Does that make sense? You know, we worked so hard at being integrated and that has been what has rocked our world more, but it's also helped us in another way to just kind of accept this weird, hard, horrible part of the human experience. It's the hardest. Grief, I think, is the hardest. I've never experienced, I have experienced, you know, grandparents and, but until my dad died in January unexpectedly, I hadn't really walked through hard grief. And so like you, I mean, I would think, I have to imagine losing a child is the worst grief. Grief is the hardest thing I've walked through and nothing can compare you, prepare you for it. No, and it is the worst of the worst. And we're still babies in it. I mean, it's important to know we're still, we're still barely breathing, really. And we found our way um, this far through honesty and through community and through walking this out with our four kids and that that piece of our shared solidarity and being in a community that knows pain has been really helpful and I my dad also died two years ago. I read that in your book and I was like, ah, she knows this too. Yeah. Yeah. And that my dad taught us a lot about dying and, um, and he lived in our house for the last four and a half months of his life. And we took care of him and, and Jose, that's my husband, you know, it, Jose has not known some of the pain, like from my childhood, Jose doesn't have some of that story. And so my dad dying was like his first pain that way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my dad really modeled this thing about we we only we have one life here on earth and we're all going to die mm-hmm. and we go out kind of how we came in. And um, so as horrible and hard and devastating and the trauma, I mean, we're st- we're all in therapy. We're all working out our grief and processing the trauma of the suddenness of Jared because that by far is one of the hardest parts of the story for us. And his, he was so young when our, my yes. dad was 75 and he was known he was going to go. Yes. But there was something about him teaching us about humanity that has helped us be just a teeny bit. Like we had done this little thing before. I've done a lot of death in my work as pastor, but nothing close like this. And, and so honestly, the, my dad, uh, kind of helping us at least pave a little bit of the road mm-hmm. has helped, but this is all uncharted territory. Right. The biggest hope, the biggest healing that I've had is talking to other families who have had children die by suicide because there yeah. is something, you know, so extra traumatic about <sighs> that loss that he somehow in that moment chose to leave us. Mm-hmm. And uh, wrestling with that, we'll never know. I mean, a saying that Jared had tattooed on his, his thigh was, I don't know. And that was mm. Aristotle. You know, I know more than yeah. you, but I know that I don't know. And um, that tattoo, I will tell you, has helped us. My husband, who was not a tattoo person, ended up getting that tattoo right after Jared died. And we are thankful for it because every mm. time we circle around all of the, the brain stuff, not the soul stuff, but the brain stuff, like trying to figure it out, try to make it fit and what what do we miss and all those things like we come back and we just do our little thing and then we land on that phrase 
yeah. that we just don't know there are things in this world, this side, that we will never, ever know. And that is hard. And especially when we come from a tradition that in a Western way of thinking that is, we can figure something out and that somehow we do know. Right. And you talk about in that chapter, the practice of mourning, how the Western culture and the Christian culture, they want us to move quickly through our grief and our mourning. And that's just not, and I've, I've been wrestling with that too. Like, I just want to get this done and I just want to be, and then the pandemic hits and I'm like, gosh, I feel like I just took a million steps back. But you, you would say that that's not the, and I would start agree with you that that's not really the right approach to just try to get through our grief and move on to the next phase. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I think that, and I, again, you know, we're still babies, but I think the part that fits with the bigger story is integrating pain as a normal way of living and that it's our humanness. And so I'm going to hurt for the rest of my life. And my family is going to hurt. And all the people who love Jared, he was really um, beloved. And they're all, you know, everyone's suffering with this shock. And so the stages of grief, and my understanding is that even Elizabeth Kubler-Rosh, you know, kind of later on said, wait a second, you don't, don't take these as five linear things, you know, that you move through. They were always meant to express parts of the grief story. And so for me, it's about integrating it. And so one of the things that I, you might feel this way too, because your dad's death is so fresh is that with the global pandemic on top of it, one of my biggest fears has been that we will um, skip over Jared's grief and then it'll catch up to us later. Yeah. And I was with my therapist last week. I got a really good therapist. You know, it was one of the first things I did. And I've done tons of counseling therapy kinds of things, you know, for 26 years. But I knew I needed somebody to just do this with in a really intentional way. And um, she really helped me. As I explain, I express that fear. And she's like, no. Trust yourself and trust your body and trust your story. And mm-hmm. it's just going to look a little different right now, but it's, and now you're going to integrate that in the middle of your grief, there was a global pandemic. And so it's not, it's not, it just goes back to what you said. It, this thing is not linear and mm-hmm. every part of humanity and Western culture and Christian culture to the max tries to make things linear. And it's just not. And so if we can break that, we can survive. So I kind of had some peace come about just owning that, yes, I am going to, uh, it's different now because some of my focus is on global pandemic. But at the same time, my grief is part of every minute of every day, just like it was before. It just looks a little different and feels a little different than it felt a month ago. I mean, I feel like it's almost all-encompassing now. Yes, I felt a little bit of what you were saying, like, okay, now I'm focused on this and not so much grieving my dad, but now I'm more at, like, it's just, it's, I'm at the phase, I feel like it's once again all-consuming because of 
the pandemic too. And I know one of the things you say is knowing what to do with your grief and how to mourn. And it's how, when you feel like it is all consuming and we don't have people, we don't have physical except our own, you know, our own little core family unit. So it's a lot to figure out how, when that grief and mourning is all consuming, how do you, what do you do with it? How do you process it? Yeah. And it's so interesting because everyone processes so different. And Mm -hmm. so I can only speak from my experience, but I think the question, and it's so hard because you know, this in grief, it's like people say, what do you need? I don't know. What the hell do you mean? However, I actually think that if we're quiet and listen and maybe um, create some space, we might be able to find a little something that might help. And so I really like Megan Devine's work and that book is awesome. I have read that book, the one it's okay not yeah. to be okay. Yes, it's, I it's have excellent. read that. And yes. her her site, refugeandgrief.com, and then she's got a Facebook page, um, Refuge yes. and Grief is really solid and I really like it because I like the hashtag perfectly normal in grief. Yes, I agree. I follow her and I yeah. yes, I've, I've poured over it's, her things as well. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. But a piece is is that we can't take that she says, you know, you can't take away the pain, but we can reduce our suffering. And so when I found this was pretty early on, right after Jared died, there was a night that um, I got an email that we've gotten all these stories from Jared and we keep looking for clues and we're kind of giving up on that now five months later, but we were looking for clues. Like, did somebody know something that nobody else did? Because the stories were all the same. We had no idea. Jared was happy, forward-looking, leading, dreaming, planning, all those things. And so I kept thinking, I'm going to get an email that like says, but I knew this specific thing for this specific day, you know, because Jared was human and he struggled with depression and things in high school. And, you know, he is a big creative feeler, super deep existential person. So that was all in there for sure. But um, I got this email and was from uh, his philosophy instructor. And I thought, this is the moment I'm going to find out something. And it just was exactly what we had heard from everybody Mm. else. And I just, I I was paralyzed in my living room because my husband was busy. No kids were home at this point. It was before all this. And I'd already talked to my support person who had lost her son earlier that day a lot. And I got this panicky feeling and I didn't want to just pick up the phone and call one person. It's like it felt I needed to share it somehow. And I'm a group person. And so that night I actually did call one person and said, I know what I need. I think I know what I need. I have to have a place where I can go when I have something that I don't know what to do with and share it with my people. And so I set up a boxer, she set up a boxer thread with some of my safe people. And that little thing, like it came that night, it has been so helpful to me. And I don't use it all the time, but like, I know it's there. And so I can go there. That's me because I'm a verbal processor. Everyone's different. But I think that finding something has kind of helped me um, navigate short of it all together. Because I agree with you, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Because now the whole world is suffering Mm -hmm. in different ways. And frankly, you know, now people we know are losing people to the coronavirus. Yeah. yeah. And so that part of grief and we know, you know, with your dad and I know with my dad and my son, it's like death 
is so hard. Yes. Yeah. And then when you can't touch each other and you can't be there, you can't have people love you in the way that, I mean, I had people there within 15 minutes of the police being at my door, you mm. know, and that, that missing that I am missing that I have the three that are in my circle, you know, my son and uh, my son and my daughter and my husband are home and that helps. But my heart just hurts so much for people that don't have that touch Yeah, right now. But my question would always be, well, what can I do to relieve, to relieve some of my suffering. I can't take care of the pain. Right. I can relieve some of my suffering. And as part of that where lament comes in, because that's a word I think we're hearing more and more, and you address that in this chapter. But can you talk just a little bit about that lament, what that means, and how that plays into this? Well, yeah, I think lament is, I mean, especially an evangelical, uh, conservative, charismatic Christian systems, which is kind of the stream, you know, that I was from or the conservative evangelical uh, stream. And then a lot of people I know were in some kind of fundamentalist rigid system that was, um, that just didn't value lament. Yeah. And so period, even though it's a total biblical thing. Well, I hadn't really even heard of it until the last several months. And I'm like, I'm hearing this word all the time, but that's only because I'm opening my eyes to more authors and other ways of thinking. But I'm like, in my whole years in the church, I'm not sure I've heard of this word. So yeah. No, it's really skipped over. And this is, I mean, we're in Easter, Holy Week right now. Mm -hmm. It's a great example. And up until the start of the refuge, we had never done anything for Good Friday. It was always, or Holy Saturday. It was always about the Easter Sunday celebration Mm -hmm. service. And you don't have Easter without Friday and Saturday and Saturday, Holy Saturday is a day of grief. Yeah. I mean, it is lament to the max because it's like not that you have no, no good end to the story. And And how would you, before we go forward, like how, tell me how you, for people that maybe aren't real familiar, how would you define lament? For me, lament is like the cry of our hearts. Mm -hmm. And so really, you know, from the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition too, you know, the Psalms are filled with lament. Yes. And they're uh, crying out. And um, I think that it's like a soul cry. Mm -hmm. And so it's some, it comes from somewhere deeper. And I think we're experiencing it now in, um, I'll just use, you know, we're from the United States. So in the United States related to the reality of racism, classism, and the things that are happening now in our country, um, that that's all being uh, revealed in such a strong way. And we're starting to finally hear a little bit more about lament about our nation's history. And so it's like, owning the real deal to me is lament like owning the deepest part of it and letting it come from the deepest place versus just words versus trying to shortcut it to take some kind of um we call in walking wounded this is in face shift a spiritual bypass you know just anything to feel better faster you can bypass it in, in all kinds of ways feelings like numbing out this is why in recovery and I've done 12-step work for a long time 
time, many, many years recovery for years, but 10 years before that. And I, it's a huge piece of just like living with our real feelings instead of trying to numb them out, eat them out, <laughs> spiritualize them out, you know, work them out, like just owning them. Right. And so to me, that's lament. Yes, I would agree. I mean, it really is taking that pause to let ourselves just really feel feel the pain when it's that's so contradictory to what we want to do we want to numb it and we want to move forward and have an action plan but the lament is really sitting in it and like you said owning it and that's important like you said that ties back to what we're experiencing now with the pandemic and then now approaching Easter. And I know one of the things you talk about too is this Friday, Saturday, Sunday living. I mean, it couldn't be more appropriate to apply to this this season. So can you talk about that? Because I think that is just a really powerful part practice that you all do at the refuge and that you share about. Yeah, this this concept came up a long time ago, like the early on in the refuge. So we're 14. So, you know, probably about 13 years ago. And I remember we focused each whole week on Friday and Saturday, well, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, leading up to Easter and Good Friday, you know, is a night of pain and betrayal and reality, reality. And so that part, that's just the human experience is pain, you know, and that's one of the pieces related to Jesus and Jesus was fully human, you know, and so the human, it, it embodies the human experience of pain and suffering. And then Saturday is usually, again, think the one that gets skipped over and that is the waiting and living in grief and not having an end of the story. Most people live in Friday and Saturday. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's real life, but there is Sunday and Sunday is um, that there's hope that new life does come out of death. New beautiful things come out of adversity and deep, dark pain. And that there's, um, you know, a constant rebirthing happening in everyone's story. And so that Friday, Saturday, Sunday rhythm is, is what we're probably need to, ex, in my opinion, um, accept and integrate more and that they're always all working at the same time. We go linear too. You know, we try and see everything in Friday, then Saturday, then Sunday, then Friday, then Saturday, then Sunday. And while that has, um, you know, some uh, helpfulness in terms of an illustration, real life, is all those three things kind of working together constantly in a cycle. And the truth is the church wants to stop on Sunday. Uh It wants to, it just loves Easter morning. That is fine. It is a piece of the story, but it's not the fullness of the story. And I think that's why the church is losing so many people is because it's like humans know it's not the story. There's more to this story and we've got to learn how to embrace all of it. Right. And one of the quotes that I wrote down from your book on this. You said, death, sadness, life, loss, lament, resurrection, they all bleed together in mysterious ways. And just what you said, it's not always linear and we don't always just go to Sunday really quick and everything's okay. I think we have to grapple with, we don't know when Sunday's coming if we look at the pandemic and it's mysterious how this is all bleeding together. Because I would say, I mean, wouldn't you, we're kind of stuck in a Saturday right now of like, this is hard. This is sad. We have all these deaths and we don't really know when Sunday's coming with the pandemic. 
Right. And I think what's going to be hard, so, and I feel it too. So, you know, I'm human and I would prefer Sunday. I mean, yes. hope is hope is like my favorite word. Everyone yes. knows us at the refuge. And the truth is, is we're going to have to understand. We're going to have, we're, this is, this will shift a little bit. It will, yes. but Friday and Saturday are part of this story. And so yeah. what we, if we do a false hope, this is what I think is the problem. It's a false hope. And so, and the false hope is that now we're sort of in this zone and now we don't have to go back there. And instead of embracing um, that, the truth is we're going to keep cycling through this. It's very likely that this is now a new normal for us. Not that we would be this isolated and that there's lockdown, shutdown, you know, turn it off, stay at home forever. But we are, um, when fall comes and there's a potential resurgence, if we're like thinking that we had, we're living in Sunday, we're not living in reality. As Westerners, it's really hard to grapple with that, especially the messages we get from political powers about, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was everything's going to be great by Easter or everything's just going to bounce back like normal. And I don't think, yes, we want hope, but we want realistic or we need a realistic hope and not these false hopes that we so often cling to. Yeah, this is that, you know, embracing paradox. And, you know, that's been one of the most helpful uh, concepts to me years and years ago from Father Richard Rohr. And it's fleshed out and really every faith tradition, every wisdom teacher, you know, so much of it is there, but it's actually not very present in a evangelical, conservative, limited, rigid, fundamentalist system. It's, you know, that's either or dualistic Mm -hmm. thinking and paradox is both and Mm -hmm. they can both exist. And you know, in grief, this is a huge one because when you're grieving, you, um, it's really easy to feel bad about feeling good. And, um, and then even now, you know, now this new thing, like we're, my husband and I, we work, we have to work, you know, and it's our life and our passion. Our, our jobs are not like a job. They're our vocation and, you know, what we're called to do. So even that, you know, we were like, gosh, should I be doing this now? Am I supposed to be laying on the ground because I'm also grieving and this is really hard. And I think learning to embrace that both of them can exist in the same space. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday can all live together. Right. And I think that's why when your blog, When I read the practice of grieving and living at the same time, that really spoke to me because I was earlier in my grief process, but my mom was with us and I shared that with her because it's like, yes, we're grieving and so sad, but I still also have my two children at home and I'm living life. I mean, this was before the pandemic, but it's, we're trying to do both. We're grieving and trying to live. And it is that paradox of being in both worlds. Yeah. There is something about learning how to live there. And a really interesting thing that my uh, young adult kids told us early on, it's really stuck with me is that um, they shared that one of their biggest fears in all of this is that they would lose us Mm. emotionally Mm -hmm. because we would be so focused on grief that we wouldn't be able to be with them in their lives and that we would we would basically our lives would stop and that it would just be like stuck in that moment in time and that they needed us they actually they said we need you to live and um it was so helpful and teaching ourselves and letting ourselves and then teaching them that 
we can hold it all together. And something else my therapist said, I know lots of wisdom from therapists, is we were actually humans were meant to hold this. Mm. Like that's a piece of God's image in us and that we're meant to. And that some of what we were taught, you know, kind of squeezing it out or healing it or mending it and just making it all better is false. And that humans are so resilient. And we know this about humanity. I mean, humans have existed a long time. And I believe they'll keep existing. And there's, we're made for the full measure of the human experience. We're made for it. And it's hard. It's brutal. It's, it's really hard. It's the <laughs> and worst. In your, in your latest uh, blog, talking about grief in the global pandemic, you say often in that blog, it's all too much. So even though we're meant to, we still feel like it's too much. To yes, because it is too much. It does feel like it's too much. And I think it's yes. honest because that's part of our humanity. But we, for the most part, you know, and we don't know the end of the story. And that's the thing. Once you taste death and see death yeah, close, so close, you know, we all know that our, our mortality, that life is fragile yeah. and none of us know um, what will look like. However, we are, because we're in this conversation right now, we are still here. So that does say something about even though it feels too much, we are surviving. We're still breathing. We're still living. Right. At least for today. That's right. And how, there's so many things, ways I could go with this, but I am curious because you spoke so much about it in your past, in your earlier story, just about your evolving faith and how does this play into it? Because I know with me, it has, and it's been another phase of deconstructive and maybe deconstruction, but maybe you're way past that. And so it's not, your faith is pretty solid, but losing someone close to you and then me personally getting a cancer diagnosis after that, and then a global pandemic, it's really rattled my faith even more. And I'm at an odder, harder spot than I thought I was. So how, how do you grapple with God and prayers being answered or not and deaths and all of this? I'm just curious your own journey through this. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that is really true for me personally is, you know, 14 solid years into losing all that I once believed, really. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a long time ago. Right. And, and that's why I'm like, you're way farther into this. I'm just a a year, a couple years, year or two. And I'm like, gosh, this just totally set me whirling that I don't even know now. So yes. No, it's so hard. And I know so many people in that same spot. And so in my faith, what the small amount that I have left is still continues to evolve. But it's interesting. Yeah. I'm sitting here where I am right now. I have a picture of my friend, David Hayward. He does a lot of cartoons and art and naked pastor um, is his website. And he's got, I bought this image because I loved it so much. And it's all these different um, icons that he drew of Jesus. And um, Jesus as a refugee, Jesus as native, Jesus, rainbow cake, and you know, yeah. LGBT community, weeping with that, you know, all these different, delivering pizza, <laughs> all these different beautiful images. I think that there are probably like 16 different images of Jesus. And what I love about that is that the thing that I do have is just a wider, more expansive view than I used to. And so I think Jesus shows up in 
all kinds of different ways for different people. And for me, the one truth, I only have kind of like, I shed it all. I was a good Christian. Okay. I was <laughs> rock solid. And um, I, when it was all said and done, the one truth, and this is from a long time ago, and I wrote about this in Faith Shift, and it's still true. And it really came to play when Jared died. Cause that, of course, you're like, is it all going to be all the way gone now? You know, mm-hmm. like, am I going to lose that little thing I still had left? And my thing was Emmanuel, God with mm-hmm. us. Emmanuel, God with us. Yeah. And that whatever that God somehow is with us. I don't personally aspire to a theology or believe it, a theology that God is doing this in any way, shape or form related to global pandemic or people dying. And um, whether that is by natural causes or by suicide, it's yeah. just like, I don't see, that's just not, I don't have that view of God anymore. I let God off the hook for managing all the things in the world. Mm-hmm. But I do believe personally, theologically, that God is with us in mm-hmm. it. And, um, and so, and I have felt God now I have to say, I don't feel God in the same way that I used to, or it used to be crystal clear Mm -hmm. and it would swoop in, you know, when I was reading the Bible or singing a song or saying something that was spiritual, like, and I would feel it. I just don't have that anymore, but I do have a sense of God with me and with us and honestly with the world right now in so many wild and beautiful and um, surprising and weird eclectic ways and that we all need something different and so that's the beautiful part you know Jesus healed that's the other part I love Jesus healed in all different ways he didn't do it one way and I don't know where this one way thing got so much traction Uh, and it did come from western thinking and it came from head and knowledge and you know we know church history enough to know kind of where it came from but it got so embedded and it's so it lacks imagination and creativity and room for human diversity and honestly it puts god in a box Mm -hmm. and so breaking god out um has been really helpful but i do want to say for those people who are just like in early years of faith shifting this is so disorienting it's disorienting on a good day and so then add in you know factors like losing family members like a global pandemic like still being connected to a lot of people it's hard not to laugh when you say that because it seems like so surreal that these are the words we're using right now i mean i know Right. <laughs> so yes, we need. I guess we have to allow ourselves the grace and space to say it is disorienting. It is hard. This is not normal at all. Quote our normal. So maybe it is just to give ourselves that grace and space. I would say and trust the longer story. Yeah. And trust the longer story. Like we're not going to have any of this figured out, which is always bad language anyway. And we're taught that if I could just figure it out, I could just figure it out. And I think um, I do that, even though I know better, I will say, oh, once you turn this corner, once you turn that corner, you know, all kinds of things that have language about figuring things out. Before Jared died, this is a long struggle. And now there is like so this is that part that my kid really embodied. And he was like, mom, I, we don't know. 
we do not know. And, um, and living in mystery and living in things that are unfigureoutable. And Christian uh, thinking, rigid Christian thinking just makes that super hard. It's like in our brains, figure it out so that we can manage it. And this is all unmanageable. And even the Christian, I mean, I think we try to put the label that God's responsible for this, or he's trying to teach us something, or here's the blessing coming out of it. And that's just us trying to make sense of it. And I think it goes back to like you were just saying, we we might not have the answer and it's hard and we've got to sit in it. But when you just spoke about Emmanuel, God with us, I mean, that just made me, give me gave me chills because it might be as simple as that as far as getting, walking through this every minute. And it's hard, but God is with us. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. I personally believe that. And, mm-hmm. um, and to look for little signs of life and yeah. to be careful about trying to um, grind down and find them and to find them in the old ways and to be open to the smaller tendernesses, the, un- the surprising things in nature, in people, in music and art and justice in things that somehow remind us of hope and do something in us and that there is good alive in the world. And I think, you know, that's why the stories are really helpful across all kinds of beliefs, across all kinds of realities is that they're in the middle of this hard. There really is good. There really is. And sometimes it's hard to see. And I think the other night we have a, a coronavirus support group that we started right when it hit, knowing that there, the isolation was going to really be a big problem for a lot of people and that there's something about connection and um we've been doing just stuff during the week and it's on facebook but then an in-person group on zoom once a week last week i was like i want to start though with this because sometimes and i do this too i'm like you know what's hard what's good what's bringing anxiety what's bringing some peace and i think that that is a helpful exercise however i just think that's good for our kids too It is because both exist, but Uh I did start and say, we're going to start with what is hard, period, first, Mm -hmm. and really just let that be okay. And that is, that's important for us, a big practice for me, because I like to kind of just go, but I'm so grateful, but I, you know, and but it goes back to what we're taught to do as good Christians. It's really hard. I mean, that is, and we do that to our kids too. Like I, when they complain, I make them say, well, come on now. Let's yeah. let's be thankful for this. So I this you're really speaking to me. This is good. Okay. Um, so what's hard? What's hard? And we stop and let the let it be hard. Yes, and live with that and have that be okay. It's a little bit of that Friday, and it doesn't mean that Sunday's not coming, and you know it doesn't mean you don't circle around and remember that too. But put periods at the end of some sentences that are okay. hard. Okay. Okay. Kathy, you are just so full of wisdom and knowledge. You're such a counselor and have so, so much to say to help people walk through these hard spaces, even though you're walking through your own. So I just, I'm thankful for your voice, your books, your blog, all of it. Can you tell us where you can be found? Because our time is up and I know you have to get on with your day. So where can people find you? The best place, you know, I mean, I'm in such a weird season, but the best place for sort of the hub is kathyescobar.com. So that has links to, um, I've got a Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram. I'm just not super, super out there, but it's on there. And then it kind of shares all the different things. So about the books, how to order books, uh, practicing the newest one I love. It came up, 
It it's gave, so you know, good. Two weeks before um, this really hit yes. in the world and on top of our grief. But I think it's a book for the long story. And it has 10 practices um, that are just help embodying a better way of moving in the world. It changes yeah, with us. Yes, I would agree. Like I said, I've been reading through it and we just talked about the practice of mourning today but there are several practices in it it'll just speak to people and you give questions and activities or exercises i should say to just help people and examine your own practices to change the world so i highly recommend it and we'll put a link to that on the show notes and then your other book faith shift we'll put a link to and down we go is another book that you've authored so we'll put links to all of those and where to find you your blog all of that kathy okay well it was great getting to hang out with you you yes. and just thinking about you as we all do this hard thing together and it was a joy to be with you for listening to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. You can find the links we mentioned and where to buy Kathy's newest book at the episode show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. 